Hi, I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, host of the new How Stuff Works Now podcast. Every week, I'll be bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous developments we've seen in science, technology, and culture. Fresh episodes will be out every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and everywhere else that fine podcasts are found. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Over the past few years, Holly, you and I have talked about a number of prominent figures and moments in the civil rights movement. That is correct. Uh, so we've talked about people like Rosa Parks and Byron Rustin, and we've talked about Supreme Court decisions like Brown versus Board and Loving versus Virginia, organizations like the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, but other than talking sort of uh, obliquely about the laws and practices and social systems that have enforced segregation and discrimination in the United States, as well as talking about some specific incidents of racist violence, uh, like the dis- the destruction of the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We've never really talked a, mu- a lot about the opposition to that movement. So today, we are talking about one of the most prominent voices against the civil rights movement and its objectives. Alabama Governor George Wallace, who spent multiple campaigns for both governor and president on an explicitly pro-segregation platform. In his 1963 inaugural address as governor of Alabama, he famously proclaimed segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So we're going to be talking about violent retaliation against the civil civil rights movement that happened during his terms in office. And we're also going to be talking a lot about his first wife, Lurleen. He was married other times, so we're not really getting into that at all. But we all are going to talk about Lurleen, whose own story is both tied directly to her husband's political career and includes a pretty disturbing account of medical neglect. So uh, George Corley Wallace Jr. was born on August 25th of 1919 in southeastern Alabama, where his father was a farmer. His political career started very early at the age of 15 when he served as a government page at the Alabama State Capitol and made up his mind to return one day as governor. In his high school years, he was also a boxer, winning two state titles in that sport. Wallace studied at the University of Alabama, paying his tuition by waiting tables and boxing. He graduated in 1937 and then finished his law degree in 1942. That same year, at the age of 24, he met Lurleen Burns, who was then 16, while she was working at a five and dime in Tuscaloosa. She had graduated from high school early, and she was working there to try to save up money to go to nursing school. George was already very interested in politics, something that didn't really interest Lurleen at all, but they quickly became inseparable. Not long after they met, Wallace was inducted into the U.S. Army Air Corps to serve in World War II. He and Lurleen got married on May 21st, 1943, while he was on leave after having contracted meningitis. They spent their honeymoon in a friend's guest room, although although George spent a lot of his time out talking politics. While he was still stateside, Lurleen traveled back and forth between her parents' home in Alabama and the air bases where he was stationed. This included a trip to New Mexico, which she made with their five-month-old daughter, Bobby Joe, only to find that George had not arranged housing for them on the base. They wound up needing to stay in a converted chicken coop. 
Soon, uh, George would be stationed in the Pacific, where he flew incendiary missions over Japan until being medically discharged for severe anxiety in 1945. In 1946, he started actively pursuing a political career. He became assistant to the state attorney general, and in 1947, he was elected to the Alabama state legislature as representative for the first of his two terms. During his campaign, Lurleen was the family's sole breadwinner. He was elected a judge for the Third Judicial Court in 1953, a position that he retained until 1958. And this job came with enough income for him to buy a home for the family. Up until this point, they had been living in a variety of rented rooms and garage apartments. And his nickname became Fighting Little Judge, both for his toughness from the bench and his former time as a boxer while he was in school. Over this same time, he and Lurleen had two more children, Peggy Sue, born in 1950, and George Corley Wallace III, known as George Jr., in 1951. And Lurleen was increasingly frustrated by her husband's devotion to politics, often to the neglect of his family. At this point in his career, people were calling George Wallace, quote, a dangerous liberal. He was part of charismatic Governor Big Jim Folsom's re-election campaign in 1953. Folsom was also Wallace's mentor, and in later years would be described as being way ahead of his time in terms of social progress and racial equality. Folsom's positions during his career included things like voting rights for black people, an end to prison labor, better schools, funding for roads to make it easier for farmers to get their crops to market, and more government positions for women. Much of this, of course, was an uphill battle and ultimately failed. A lot of Wallace's policies in the earlier part of his career mostly mirrored Folsom's. During his two terms in the state legislature, he drafted legislation to promote vocational schools and attract manufacturing jobs to Alabama. In 1948, when pro-segregation Dixiecrats walked out of the Democratic National Convention, both Wallace and Folsom stayed put. While in office in the State House of Representatives, Wallace sponsored a bill that taxed alcohol to fund trade schools. The Wallace Act, which was signed in 1951 and was half of what became known as the Wallace Cater Acts, allowed municipalities to sell bonds in order to fund industrial development. This was part of an effort to bring jobs to Alabama and diversify the state's economy. Critics called the Wallace Cater Acts socialistic. Another criticism was that most of the industries that moved into Alabama through the act's incentive uh, were low-wage, non-union work that paid lower than the national average. In 1958, Wallace embarked on his first campaign to be the governor of Alabama. He continued on with the kind of populist policies and relatively moderate positions on racial equality that he had up until this point. Obviously, that is not his entire platform, but... You know, he was sort of continuing similar, uh, similarly to what his mentor had. And Big Jim Folsom had been elected on a similar platform in both 1946 and 1954. But Wallace's opponent in the Democratic primary was Attorney General John Patterson. Patterson was running on a pro-segregation platform supported by the Ku Klux Klan. Wallace, on the other hand, had the support of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP. The primary went into a runoff with Patterson beating Wallace and then beating the Republican candidate William Longshore by a landslide. When asked what had gone wrong, Wallace reportedly told supporters some version of the following quote, which uses a slur 
that we are not going to repeat. Quote, I got out N-worded by John Patterson. This is the first and last time I will be out N-worded by another candidate. This quote and variations on it have been widely reported, but Wallace would later deny ever saying it. Apart from shifting his politics on race completely, this loss for governor took a toll on Wallace's personal life. Lurleen fed up with his absences and rumors of infidelity and a deep depression that he went into following the loss took the children to her parents' house and filed for divorce. George begged her to come back and the two eventually reconciled. And their last child, Janie Lee, named after Robert E. Lee, was born in 1961. Wallace returned to his position in the circuit court, where he turned his attention to blocking federal efforts at civil rights. When the U.S. Civil Rights Commission requested that he turn over voting records, he refused to do it and was threatened with prison for contempt. He wound up turning the records over by handing them over to grand juries to turn in on his behalf, so he could say that he had not personally given the government those records, but he could also stay out of jail. In 1962, Wallace ran for governor again. This time, he took a pro-segregation, pro-states' rights platform and, like John Patterson, got the support of the Ku Klux Klan. He won the Democratic primary after a runoff, and the Republican Party fielded no candidate at all in the election. Even though he was running unopposed, he got more than 300,000 votes, more than any candidate in Alabama history at that time. That infamous Segregation Forever inaugural address was co-written by Klansman Asa Carter, who could easily be his own podcast subject, as he also wrote The Education of Little Tree and the rebel outlaw Josie Wales under the pseudonym of Forrest Carter. Wallace's first term saw some of the most notorious incidents of racist violence in the civil rights movement, with critics blaming Wallace's rhetoric for stoking the fire. And we are going to talk about it. Uh, after a quick sponsor break. The holidays are almost here. I'm sorry to be the person that says that. It hurts my heart. Nobody has time to go to the post office or deal with traffic or finding parking or standing in a packed place with a lot of people trying to mail their holiday parcels. So just use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all of that hassle of going to the post office during the insanely busy holiday season. Everything you would be doing at the post office, you can do right at your own desk where it's comfortable and you can have your coffee. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package right at the instant you need it, and then you hand that off to your fantastic mail carrier. It is easy and convenient. Uh, right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com using our promo code, which is STUFF, and get a special offer. That is a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer. That includes postage as well as a digital scale. So this, this holiday season, you could actually give yourself the gift of time. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on that microphone that you see at the top of the homepage and type in the word STUFF. That's Stamps.com and enter STUFF. Although there were certainly incidents of racial violence before George Wallace took office in Alabama, and that violence was not confined just to Alabama, some of the most infamous incidents in the United States civil rights movement happened there during his first term. On May 2nd, 1963, children began marching from Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church to City Hall as part of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's Children's Crusade. That first day, hundreds were arrested. When even more gathered to march on May 3rd, 
Birmingham Commissioner of Public Safety, Bull Connor, used high-pressure fire hoses, police dogs, and clubs to turn them back. This was televised, and although the march itself was controversial because it put children in danger, it propelled the movement into the national spotlight. The 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed just before the start of Sunday school on September 15, 1963, killing Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Denise McNair, and Carol Robertson, ages 11 to 14. A week before the bombing, George Wallace had told the New York Times that there needed to be, quote, a few first-class funerals, so civil rights activists accused him of creating the climate that led to the bombing. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wired him to say, quote, the blood of four little children is on your hands. Your irresponsible and misguided actions have created in Birmingham and Alabama the atmosphere that has induced continued violence and now murder. In 1963, two black students, Vivian Malone and James Hood, tried to enroll in the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa, which was still segregated in spite of the fact that nine years had passed since the Supreme Court found school segregation unconstitutional in Brown versus Board of Education. It was also in spite of the attempt of one other black student, Authorine Lucy, who attended classes for three days in 1956. She was suspended, quote, for her own safety because white students were rioting over her admission, including throwing tomatoes and eggs at her. She threw, she sued the school, which then used that lawsuit as grounds to expel her permanently. When Malone and Hood tried to enroll, U.S. District Judge Seaborn Lynn forbade Wallace from interfering. But Wallace defied that order. Flanked by state troopers, he personally blocked the door to Foster Auditorium, where they were to register for class, until the National Guard arrived later in the day to intervene. This became known as the stand in the schoolhouse door, and it was one of the things that prompted President John F. Kennedy to push for civil rights legislation. Selma, Alabama was also the scene of ongoing nonviolent civil rights protests during this time, which were repeatedly met with arrests and violence on the part of law enforcement. Many of these related to voting rights at the time, discriminatory literacy tests, poll tax, poll taxes, and a flat out refusal to register black people to vote meant that many black people could not. These protests included a series of marches to the Selma Courthouse to try to register people to vote, and eventually to the Selma to Montgomery March, which was a symbolic march to the state's capital following activist Jimmy Lee Jackson being shot and killed by a state trooper during a march. Jackson was one of several civil rights activists killed in Alabama during Wallace's administration. Wallace had insisted that this march would not take place, saying, quote, such action will not be allowed on the part of any other group of citizens or non-citizens of the state of Alabama and will not be allowed in this instance. The government must proceed in an orderly manner and lawful and law-abiding citizens must transact their business with the government in such a manner. There will be no march between Selma, Alabama and Montgomery, and I have so instructed the Department of Public Safety. On what came to be known as Bloody Sunday... On March 7, 1965, several hundred marchers to Selma tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Under Wallace's orders to stop the march, state troopers and a posse assembled by Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark attacked the marchers and brutally beat them. Wallace would later say, quote, It was something that happened that enraged me because I didn't intend for it to happen that way. 
but I didn't want them to get beyond that point where there was some people that told me there might be some violence. So in other words, to prevent the marchers from getting to somewhere where people were waiting to hurt them, the police hurt them. The Selma to Montgomery march would be turned away at the bridge a second time before U.S. District Judge Frank M. Johnson ordered that the marchers be allowed to exercise their constitutional rights. Wallace said that Alabama did not have the resources to protect them, and President Lyndon Johnson federalized the Alabama National Guard and sent military police and army troops to act as an escort. These Selma to Montgomery marches raised national awareness of voting rights issues and contributed directly to President Lyndon Johnson's push for the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This act banned most of the strategies that had been used to keep black people from voting. However, in 2012, the Supreme Court struck down one of its provisions, which had required states that had previously used discriminatory election laws to get federal approval before changing their election laws. As a result, several states implemented election laws that the federal government had previously denied as discriminatory. So we're going to back up just a little bit, because in 1964, Wallace had actually made his first run at the White House, getting his name on the ballot in three states. And he didn't pursue the race aggressively, in part because Republican candidate Barry Goldwater publicly denounced the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was basically Wallace's whole platform. Propelled by Goldwater's ultimate loss in the race, Wallace decided to make a bigger effort in 1968. But there was a problem. He'd have far more support in doing so if he was still governor. But the Alabama Constitution did not allow governors to serve consecutive terms. First, he tried to get the state legislature to amend the Constitution so that he could run again, but that failed. So instead of admitting defeat, he put his wife Lurleen on the ballot with the intent of basically running things from behind the scenes. He would basically still have a lot of the perks that came along with being governor that he could use as a springboard to run for president again, with his wife actually being the one in office. However, Lurleen had cancer. During the cesarean delivery of their daughter Janie Lee in 1961, doctors had found a suspicious mass in her uterus. And as was common practice at the time, the doctors told George, but not Lurleen, and they left it up to him whether she should be informed. And George kept this information from her, saying that he didn't want to upset her. So four years later, in 1965, when she went to a gynecologist because she was having unusual bleeding, she was completely shocked to find that she had a malignant tumor. In spite of her complete lack of interest in politics, and in spite of the fact that she had just undergone a hysterectomy and radiation treatments, which were described to the public as female surgery, Lurleen agreed to run as her husband's stand-in. She ran on a campaign of upholding all of her husband's policies and his being her number one assistant. In the early days on the campaign trail, she would start off by giving a brief prepared remarks uh, before introducing her husband, who would then basically take it over from there. As she gradually became more confident in her, her speaking skills, she did start to campaign on her own. And in the end, she beat 10 male candidates, some of them former governors, in the primary. She then won the election by a landslide, becoming the first woman governor elected in the Deep South. 
When her term as governor began, she and George had offices across the hall from each other, and staff called them Governor Lurleen and Governor George. She did push for some initiatives of her own, including legislation related to state parks and to mental health, that latter following a tour she made of two state institutions whose conditions really horrified her. During her time in office, the Alabama legislature also ratified an amendment that would allow governors to serve consecutive terms. And as promised, she also upheld her husband's promise to fight integration. In March of 1967, a federal court ordered that Alabama's schools must be desegregated in Lee versus Macon County Board of Education. This followed a lengthy series of maneuverings that George Wallace had overseen during his first term as governor to try to stop integration. This includes delaying the start of school, stationing troops at schools to prevent black students from entering, and transferring all of the white students out of Tuskegee High School after black students were enrolled there. Following the court order that came down during Lurleen Wallace's uh, time in office, she delivered an address that stridently denounced this ruling as infringing on the state's rights, vowing to use state troopers to prevent integration if necessary. This case then went on to the Supreme Court in Wallace versus the United States. Then the Supreme Court upheld the lower court's ruling, at which point some progress was actually made in desegregating the schools. Lurleen Wallace was not able, however, to keep up her duties as governor for long. In July of 1967, doctors found another tumor in her abdomen, followed by numerous other tumors the following January. She underwent tests and treatment at the MD Anderson Clinic in Houston, Texas, because there wasn't a cancer center in Alabama. Because she was governor, she had to travel back to Alabama during her treatment at least once every 20 days. During a lot of this time, she was in severe pain, and she underwent multiple operations. This went on until May of 1968, when she returned home to her family to die. And she died on May 7, 1968, at the age of 41, after just 16 months in office. Her body lay in state in an open casket, something that her husband ordered in defiance of her wishes, at the Capitol Rotunda, This was the first time anyone had lain in state there since the 1889 death of Jefferson Davis, who had been president of the Confederate States of America. Her death was met with a huge outpouring of public grief, with public schools, state offices, and some businesses closing the day of the funeral, and more than 25,000 people going to the Capitol to pay their respects. And we're going to next get into Wallace's later career, but first we're going to pause for a moment and have a word from one of our sponsors. You and I have discussed before that if we want a snack and the options available are junk food or no snack, junk snack food is wins. happening. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm going to eat that. Uh, and, you know, it, it, there's a better way. <laughs> you can be prepared ahead of time with healthier snacks from NatureBox. NatureBox makes snacks that actually taste great and are better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. You can feel a lot better about what you're snacking on. Some personal favorites of mine are the cashew crumble. That is delightful. Uh, And then garlic bread cheese crisps, which has so many things I love all in one package. There's garlic, there's bread, there's cheese, and there's crunchiness. It is all together everything I want. 
NatureBox recently made their service even better. Now you can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel any time. It's simple. Go to NatureBox.com and check out their snack catalog. There are more than 100 snacks to choose from, and they are constantly adding delicious new ones. Choose the ones you want, and they will deliver them right to your door. NatureBox is offering Stuff You Missed in History class fans 50% off your first order when you go to NatureBox.com slash history. That's NatureBox.com slash history for 50% off your first order. One last time, NatureBox.com slash history. After Lurleen Wallace's death in 1968, she was succeeded by the lieutenant governor, Albert Brewer, who raised funds for a cancer center at the University of Alabama in her memory. And that same year, as he had been planning to do, George Wallace ran for president again under the American Independent Party. Wallace got onto the ballot in every state, and he won five of them, earning more than 10% of the popular vote. Although he dropped some of his most explicit racist language, his campaign decried the influence of things like liberals, communists, and the interference of the federal government, leaning on more coded language to reach out to white voters who were unhappy with the progress of integration and increasing civil rights for black people. He ran for governor again in 1970, using much of the same anti-integration platform that had won him the election in 1962. And at times, the 1970 campaign was even more explicit. But once he was actually in office, he softened his rhetoric. Following the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the long work of the civil rights movement, many of Alabama's black population, who made up more than a quarter of the state's population, were now registered to vote Wallace realized that he would undermine his efforts if he continued to explicitly attack such a large group of the state's voters. In 1972, Wallace once again ran for president, this time as a Democrat, and once again primarily reaching out to disaffected white voters, decrying forced busing to integrate schools and welfare loafing, and advocating, quote, a return to law and order, and an end to foreign aid programs, especially to communist countries. After winning the state of Florida, his campaign looked like it was set to be a lot more successful than he had been in 1968. But then, while he was campaigning in Laurel, Maryland, he was shot by Arthur Bremer while working the crowd at a rally. Bremer had previously planned to assassinate Richard Nixon, but had ultimately never opened fire. While still recuperating, Wallace won the primaries in Maryland and Michigan as well. However, this injury left Wallace paralyzed from the waist down, and since he was hospitalized for months, he was unable to continue his campaign. He would go on to maintain that he would have won that presidency had he not been shot. Although his injury put him out of the presidential race, he ran for Alabama governor again in 1974, since that amendment to the state constitution that had come through during Lurleen Wallace's administration once again allowed him to do so. He won for his third term and his second consecutive term. And he once again spent part of his term as governor, again running for president in 1976. He won the states of Alabama, South Carolina, and Mississippi in the primary, ultimately losing the Democratic nomination to Jimmy Carter, who he endorsed after dropping out of the race. And numerous biographers describe him as being a lot more interested in campaigning than in governing. 
It sure sounds that way. He spends a lot of his time as governor on the presidential campaign trail. That's a true story. So after his gunshot injury and in light of the changing racial politics of the United States, in his later life, George Wallace started reaching out to the black community and trying to make amends. Historians and biographers really disagree on whether this attempt was motivated by a genuine change in views or whether it was political savvy and a desire not to be remembered on the wrong side of history. He began to insist that his hardline segregationist stance was based on the Constitution and a misreading of the Bible, not on white supremacy. This does not, however, quite sync with some of the quotes that are attributed to him, such as, quote, the colored are fine in their place, but they're just like children and it's not something that's going to change. It's written in stone. He also met with several of the still-living civil rights leaders who he had actively worked against, including the Reverend Ralph D. Abernathy, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, and Representative John Lewis. Lewis had been seriously beaten on Bloody Sunday during the first Selma to Montgomery march. While presenting her with the Lurleen B. Wallace Award for Courage, he also praised Vivian Vivian Malone for her, quote, strength, grace, and above all, courage during the stand in the schoolhouse door. In the words of Selma attorney J.L. Chestnut, quoted in the PBS American Experience production, George Wallace, Setting the Woods on Fire, which came out in 2000, quote, I have no problem forgiving George Wallace. I will not forget George Wallace because we must deal with the reality of Wallace. How is it that a demagogue insulting 20 million black people daily on the television can rise to the heights that Wallace did? Forgive? Yes. Forget? Never. George Wallace was elected to his last term as governor in 1982 in a campaign that actively sought and received votes from the black community. His win made him the only person in Alabama history to serve for four terms. And we took office in 1983. He made it a point uh, to appoint black officials to government positions. He also became a born again Christian that year. He retired from that last term in January of 1987, and he died on September 13th of 1998 in Montgomery, Alabama. Regardless of whether Wallace's shifts in racial ideology were genuine or just politically expedient, his methods of campaigning and his shifting platforms have really had a long-lasting influence on American politics. Dan T. Carter, in a paper published in the Journal of Southern History in 1996, writes... Wallace, more than any other political figure of the 1960s and early 1970s, sensed the frustrations, the rage of many American voters, made commonplace a new level of political incivility and intemperate rhetoric, and focused that anger upon a convenient set of scapegoats. That was in 1996. So that is George Wallace. Someone asked us on, yeah, somebody asked us on Twitter one time, if we would do a podcast on Bull Connor, who was the person who turned the fire hoses on the Children's Crusade during their march. Uh, I'm just going to say after having done this one, I'm not sh- I'm, that that's going to be way down the list because this is hard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how's your listener mail this time around? Also it's difficult. On a, it's on a lighter note. Uh, Justine says... Hello, ladies. I discovered this podcast a year ago and diligently and a bit obsessively worked my way through the archives and am now caught up. I was so excited to hear you discuss the Toledo War on one of your recent episodes. I am from slash currently live in the lovely state of Michigan. I'm very glad I'm just getting around to sending an email because I heard your lake correction today. Also, you referenced the mitten. 
This is a big deal here in Michigan. It's how we show people where we live. My dear husband, who is from Minnesota, was so confused on the first day at the University of Michigan when someone held up their right hand and pointed to a spot on their palm in response to the question, where are you from? In addition to my excitement over the Michigan references, I also wanted to chime in on the football discussion. My husband and I are graduates of the University of Michigan, and the rivalry is huge. We refer to that game as the game, and tensions on campus run high during that weekend, which is quickly approaching. Go Blue. Uh, And then she also throws out some suggestions for Michigan-related history. Thank you so much, Justine. So this made me giggle. Because I really thought the whole mitten thing was something I made up. <laughs> um, we also got a few notes from folks who were like, by your thumb is not like Erie. Uh, it's like Huron. Like, in this analogy, Lake Huron would be way up by the, the, the joint and like the end of your thumb, not down by your wrist where we were talking about drawing a straight line. So... That was not meant to be a map accurate representation of the lower peninsula. Uh, so anyway, it tickles me that the thing I was so proud of myself for coming up with as an analogy is the thing that people actually say in the real world. Thank you, Justine. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com or on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. Our Instagram is at MissedInHistory. Uh, if you would like to come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, they have all kinds of information about just about anything your heart desires. If you would like to come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, you will find show notes for this and all the other episodes Holly and I have done together, as well as an archive of every single episode we have ever worked on. We have just published our first original video to that website, so new things on the horizon. You can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.